Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the next chapter for New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's Wrestle Kingdom 11, January 4th, 2017. Kyush, how fired up are you that we're going back to a New Japan show? You got to imagine, man, that I'm pretty fucking psyched. Not only are we going to any New Japan show, we're going to what might be the best ever new japan show might be one of the best ever shows ever put on by anyone ever what a fucking palate cleanser after the stinky poo season of punk (laughs) just when i say okada versus omega do you get goosebumps like i do i mean i really do i've got to tell you i had not seen this show again after i watched it live the first time yeah and I was so hot on Tanahashi Okada, too, that I genuinely think that that's the greatest match in wrestling history. So I was such a hater when I watched this match the first time, and everyone was like, oh, six stars, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, whatever. It's not as good as Tanahashi Okada. And I still believe that it's not. But I did not fully appreciate this match at the time. Watching it again this time, I had like an out-of-body experience. This match is unbelievable. (laughs) There's an unfo- there was an there's there's an unfortunate backlash to this match because it got so hyped at the time right. that people started just finding every little thing they could wrong with it and like it's an amazing unbelievable match. You don't have to think it's the greatest wrestling match of all time to be like this was unbelievable. Like it's incredible. It's a feat of athleticism and storytelling what these guys put on here. Yeah. And that's the funny thing is because at the time, like this does not have the hottest story coming into it. Kenny Omega no. is not really a star on this level at the time. He's just not. Um, it's going up against what was previously the previous year was literally like the blowing off of an entire era. One of the greatest storylines of all time. It's going up against that suffers by comparison. Dave Meltzer like blows smoke up his ass so hard that he's literally never come back and tried to give credible ratings again after this. He jumped the shark for life off of this match this this is the thing that happened is like he overrated this match and then there were a bunch of better matches subsequently so now this rating scale is just because now we're up to like seven and a half stars or something and whatever he's allowed to have fun he's not (laughs) required to be the measuring stick of all goodness in wrestling but yeah this match is until you go back and really watch it and it helps to look at it in context because kenny now that we know what kenny omega is It's fun to go back and look at this as the launching point for this era of wrestling. It's no less than the match that the entire history of the next six years will be built on top of. And that's incredible. Yeah. Because they had just blown off what had been the basis for their promotion the year before. It's been a wild year for New Japan. Let's take a trip back in time to Wrestle Kingdom 10, January 4th, 2016. Kazuchika Okada finally exercises his demons. He finally beats Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom after he had disgracefully fallen short the year before. Suffered the greatest humiliation of his career when Tanahashi beat him. And Tanahashi mocked him, said, boy, this title is far above you right now, as Okada sobbed as he was carried out of the arena after his defeat. Which are the same words that he said after he took the title back from him the very first time when he was a baby. 
Yeah. Oh, those are just basically like young boy get to the back of the line. Exactly. And suddenly he's a kid sitting at his father's dinner table all over again. He had been so crushed that he literally like dissolved into like some weird proto version of himself. But he got yep. his shit together. He came back strong and he finally put down the goat. He nearly burned his career down, like took himself to the brink. But yeah, he gets it back together. He goes to Wrestle Kingdom, and I can't even remember who came in with the title because that felt like an afterthought. Absolutely, it was an afterthought. I don't Actually, remember he who had the belt. belt. Okada, he, that's he was right. The champion. It's, it's even better that he had the belt, actually. Because it felt, because there's a sense of inevitability to it. Like, okay, I've got the belt, whatever. But here comes Tanahashi, and it doesn't, because yeah. if I can't defend this, and my spot here, it's meaningless. Yeah, he gets, you know, he puts it back together and wins the belt, and then fucking Tanahashi wins the G1 and gets the right to challenge him at Wrestle Kingdom. The inevitability of it. And it's all both of them wanted. And if Okada had lost that match, he would have had Done. to retire. Like, that's career the would end. be over. Yeah, you could Down never to shut the mid card with you, tall boy. Instead, Okada won. He put Tanahashi down with the Rainmaker, you know, redeemed himself, solidified his legacy, became the ace of New Japan. And that is the end of that rivalry. Like, they're not, they can't come back to that. To, they, I'm sure they, like, they wrestled again, but they're not going to do that to main event the Dome ever again. Oh, yeah. They they had other matches. They famously, uh, when they did the G1 in Dallas the one year, they they let off with that match as the first match of the G1 Climax. Uh they actually kind of form a tag team called the Dream Team because they hate yeah. each other, but they're so fucking good together. It's like, yeah, <laughs> they're unstoppable together, but they can't stand each other. So, yeah, you've blown off your biggest rivalry, but you're fine because you've got really strong challengers for Okada in AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura. You've got the super heel AJ, the leader of Bullet Club, the mega baby face Shinsuke. You're going to be just fine. Except for the fact that both those guys left. Yeah, here's the thing. Japan has this rule of four, and it's the rule of three in America, but it's really the rule of four in Japan. And it's important to keep that in context with everything that we talk about, and we'll come back to that later. But Japan always has a four-person main event. That's basically how New Japan has always functioned. There's four major people who are on top at any given time. And you just kind of go around the circle of who those people are and who they're facing with and whatever. Two of those four people walk out. Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> the morning of Wrestle Kingdom, Nakamura and Styles both go to management and give their notice that they're leaving for WWE. This is, I mean, this was unpro. WWE raid a foreign, uh, foreign company felt unprecedented, and we didn't know how deep it was going to go. Turns out they also got Gallows and Anderson, but I mean, rumors were flying. Is Okada leaving too? Who the hell knew at this point? A lot of people got offered because okay, so basically what happened was it was it was less that WWE rated them and more that Finn Balor rated them because yeah. he's the one who reached out to Shinsuke. And AJ was like, hey, man, you should come to WWE. We're making tons of money over here. Maybe we could do Bullet Club over here, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, shit, sounds fun. Let's do it. I think this is also when Triple H had convinced Vince that they should try to expand into Japan. Correct. And this was after, like, that meeting where he, like, went and was like, NXT Japan, NXT India, NXT South America. 
You can't see the wanking motion I'm making right now. Exactly. But All we got out of it was NXT UK, a refuge for scoundrels. Yeah, boy, the, the pedophile world title. <laughs> the fact that yeah, the fact that even WWE had to like realize they had to shut that place down because it was a bad look really says something. Yeah, it really does. So, what the hell do you do? I mean, your next year, I assume like. I don't know, AJ was going to beat Okada for the title and then Okada could win it back from him and or Nakamura would then beat AJ and Okada would win the G1 and then we'd have Nakamura Okada at the next Dome show and Tanahashi versus AJ all out the window. Yes, and the one thing you absolutely cannot do under any circumstances is Tanahashi versus Okada again. You no. have to figure something else out. No one is no one is buying tickets for that again. It's done. It was amazing, but there's no more chapters left in that story. And if you go back and look at Wrestle Kingdom 10, who do you have? Uh, Shibata, okay, he's kind of good. No. Uh, Goto, he's not there at all. No. Fucking nobody. Abushi. Like, and the other thing I haven't mentioned yet is Ibushi quit the promotion like a month after Wrestle Kingdom. Didn't go to WWE. Well, he did go to WWE for the Cruiserweight Classic, but he, it wasn't like WWE signed him away. He just, I don't know, what he get, he just got tired of wrestling and wanted to take a break. He got hurt, and then while he was gone, he's just like, you know what, I'd rather do some other shit. So he just goes, he does like a TV show where he fights like uh, big like kaiju Godzilla monsters and he kind of does some independent shots just for the fuck of it, where he's like wrestling in parks for DDT and he does the cruiserweight classic. They try to sign him and he's like, LOL, no. <laughs> and then he only comes back here. It, we're going to talk about the context, but he only comes back here because the television network that aired the show called him and said, hey, we're putting on an anime and we kind of like to do a match with New Japan. You want to do it? <laughs> That's yeah. it. And he's like, sure. And this is like when Jim Neidhart had to play who because they didn't trust him. Like he has to be under a mask here until they like trust that he's going to stick around. Yeah, he's far from being like the cornerstone of the company that he's eventually going to become. So the, the question remains, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Naito, who was supposed to be the future, uh, has flamed out so bad they had to send him back to Mexico so they could get him off TV. Yeah. Uh, what else even is there? Like, Bullet Club, the very next night after Wrestle Kingdom, uh, they have to figure out a way to get AJ Styles out of Bullet Club, so Kenny Omega jumps him and kicks him out. But Kenny Omega is a junior heavyweight who just lost his belt. Yeah. There's no stars here. I mean, it seemed like, watching that watching that show with the the entrance he got, it seemed like they had plans for him anyway, but not plans like, not he's going to main event Wrestle Kingdom next year. That's no, insane. They had big plans for him. He was probably eventually going to lead Bullet Club or maybe do his own thing, but uh, they could not possibly have imagined that he would be in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom the following year. There's no way. Yeah. So the night after Wrestle Kingdom at the New Year's Dash show, AJ was kicked out of Bullet Club. Kenny, you know, beat him up, replaced him as the leader because, I don't know, AJ showed respect for Ibushi after he beat him at Wrestle Kingdom 10, I think. Uh, something like that. So, or, or, or he showed respect for Nakamura. Not Ibushi. Ibushi was the year before. Yeah, but like, yeah, sure, basically. 
And the, the the famous line from Omega, Bullet Club is for life, except for AJ Styles. <laughs> I love that. So when AJ Styles pretends to be in the club or whatever, actually, he's the only person formally kicked out of Bullet Club ever. So Naito won the New Japan Cup in March to earn a shot at Okada, and then he beat Okada for the belt at Invasion Attack in April. In Dominion at June, Okada won the belt back, and this is the beginning of Okada's, you know, insane two-year run with the belt. Yes. During which time he basically breaks every conceivable record and goes on, and you could probably say that he's the best wrestler in the world, and many would say the one of the best of all time during this period. Um, important in the, to note about that is the fact that he was what, 29 years old. Yeah. In the summer, they held the G1 Climax Tournament. Omega won it. He beat Goto in the finals. And again, this is a remarkable rise from he was the junior heavyweight champion at the beginning of the year. And is there any precedent for somebody jumping from the junior division to being a heavyweight contender that fast? No, quite frankly. So what we got to take a tiny bit of a tangent here because there's a there's always been a, a bit of indiscrimination in American wrestling against smaller guys like the guys like Rey Mysterio and AJ Styles and Shawn Michaels had to overcome um, because it's always been a big man sport. But it's nothing even remotely like it is in Japan, where when you come out of the dojo based on your size, they literally say, like, you're forever a junior heavyweight or you're forever a heavyweight. You might be able to bulk up 70 pounds and eventually become a heavyweight 10 years down the line, but there's literally no precedent for someone being like an entrenched junior, like becoming a heavyweight and then getting a massive push. It just doesn't happen. Fans don't take junior heavyweights seriously against heavyweights, and they never, ever, ever have. Even Liger couldn't pull it off against Muda, and they're really not that big difference in size. So for Kenny Omega to do it, and obviously Kenny Omega's big for a junior, like he was at the time, but this is wildly unprecedented. And he was really only able to do it because Bullet Club was formed to help Prince Devitt have the credibility to compete with heavyweights because he's so visually tiny. There's no way. So him finally having Bullet Club to look credible is what allowed junior heavyweights to finally kind of break through. And basically, Kenny Omega is dancing on the foundation that Devitt built. So Omega and Okada both took care of business in their subsequent matches and were set for them to fight for the title here in the main event of the Dome. Um, Must be said, this is not a huge main event. Um, no. Goto and Omega is like one of the lamest main G1 Climax finals in yeah. recent memory. Like, neither one of those guys is a star. Neither one of those guys really seemed like a credible challenger to Okada. Aside from the fact that Kenny Omega and Bullet Club especially have blown up this year in worldwide popularity, Omega himself is not at this level. He's just not. No, and the story here isn't – it's it's like compared to – Tanahashi Okada had this years-long history and these layers and layers of subtle storytelling. The story here is really just – Kenny says that he needs to be the face of New Japan's international expan expansion or it's going to fail. And we've got, you know, a foreign heel against a Japanese hero, which is, you know, a 
trope in Japanese booking much the same way it is in American booking. I mean, it's colonial fear, right? Like, yeah. these white people are taking over New Japan. There's like 500 members of Bullet Club. Yeah. New Japan's going international, but are they going to lose the soul of what they were by trying to appeal to Americans, basically? When you say international, you mean Americans. That's yeah. generally what it is. Of course, Kenny is not American. He's Canadian. But Correct. Close enough. <laughs> but it's just it's the fear that like these white people are going to take the soul of what your Japanese homebred company is. Yeah. And it's a very real fear, and it works just the same way that it works in the other direction. It's not, but it's not believable because no one in their right mind actually thinks that they're going to throw Okada in the garbage just to put the belt on a white guy. That's not what this is. No, and I don't know. The, the, the whole international expansion thing, I don't know what they really envisioned, but they ran some shows in America. And then during the pandemic, they started New Japan Strong. And Ironically, we're doing this show the week they announced they're canceling Strong because it never really found an audience. I mean, New Japan Strong was really just an opportunity to give Rocky Romero the opportunity to do some booking because he's basically been the assistant booker of New Japan for a long time. And to give Jay White a place to be in America. A, a lot of the people who were yeah. wrestled in Japan didn't have anywhere to go during the pandemic because yeah, they couldn't travel to Japan. Yeah. Yeah, so they opened a dojo in New Zealand, and they had Strong in America just for a place for them to do anything. Yeah. Uh, the sub-main event, we've got Naito defending the Intercontinental title against Tanahashi. Um, Omega beat Tanahashi to win the IC title after Nakamura vacated it. They were supposed to have a ladder match at Dominion, but Tanahashi got hurt. Man, New Japan had an incredibly shitty run of luck here. They really did. And yet, they come. It's just like in the last couple of years, they had. It's insane when you think about the last like three years of New Japan. How many injuries they had? How many times guys got COVID at the wrong time? And yet, they're still coming through it strong. The resilience of this company is incredible. Oh. Just, like, ha spending two years with non-cheering crowds in front of, like, half-empty buildings because they were required to do that while half the main eventers get injured or, like, the Kota, whole Kota Ibushi situation happens. It's phenomenally crazy that they are in the position that they are now, that they just had a Wrestle Kingdom that was massively well-received and a huge success. It's nuts, really. Yeah. So, anyway... Uh, they subbed Michael Elgin in. Elgin beat Omega in the ladder match, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Naito beat Elgin to win the IC title in September. Tanahashi came out to challenge him. Now, if you will wa think way back to Wrestle Kingdom 9 and what made Okada Tanahashi so big that time, for Wrestle Kingdom 8, Okada was supposed to wrestle Naito for the title in the main event, and the sub-main event was supposed to be Tanahashi versus Nakamura for the Intercontinental title. Kyush, take it away. So this is one of the most important moments in New Japan and Japanese wrestling history, where Tanahashi and Nakamura were so beloved by the fans and such giant stars. And Okada and Naito were both kind of untested and just kind of getting there. 
and this fan sentiment seemed to be that they were ignoring Okada and Naito for the other match. So they actually put a poll out and said, which one of these two matches do you think should be the main event of Wrestle Kingdom? And the result was like 80% to 20% Nakamura and Tanahashi in the main event. So in an unprecedented move, they took the Intercontinental title and put it above the world title as the main event of that show. This is a move that could have killed Okada's career and almost did kill Not Naito's. The shame of this followed them both for years. Naito was basically Rocky, Rocky Maya Villa, right? Oh, yeah. He was like a goody two-shoes baby face who the fans didn't respond to. Except it's like if they pushed Rocky for like an extra three years, gave him yeah. the belt, had him win King of the Ring, even though the fans didn't give a shit. Yeah. For all the like consternation about like Rocky Maya Villa, that push lasted like three months. Yeah, the WB realized pretty quick that what they had was poison. Yeah, and they and turned this, him heel, and he immediately got over. New Japan's way more patient with stuff. They gave Naito, like, three years. They sent him on excursion, like, twice, and then they had to do it a third time because the stink of this followed him. So this is the first time in eight years that Tanahashi isn't in the main event at the Tokyo Dome show. Every Wrestle Kingdom, essentially, has been Tanahashi in the main event. Starting basically from Wrestle Kingdom 2, but really from Wrestle Kingdom 3, which is when his era began. Wrestle Kingdom was just the Tanahashi show. He was always in the main event, and he always won. Like, that, that, that was the whole deal. And he was just something else on these shows. Wrestle, Wrestle Kingdom became what it became, the, the brand name it became because of him. Because the main events of these shows were legendary, awesome matches at the end of four-hour, suck-ass, crappy <laughs> shows. So here, I think they teased the idea that they might do let the fans vote on whether Okada, Omega, or Tanahashi, Naito would main event. I want to be very clear about this. I know how revisionist history goes and how American fans are kind of trained to think about this sort of thing. But had they put a poll out about which one of these two matches would have been the main event, Okada and Omega would have lost like 99 to 1. There's no conceivable way Naito's not going to be in the main event. Because somehow, after coming back and getting this new gimmick, Los Ingobernables, that he finds in Mexico, he gets it from Rushan Andrade, he brings it back. He is the hottest babyface in Japan since like 1995. There's no way he wouldn't have been in the main event. So, after all that, we can get into the show. It's January the 4th, 2017. Um, The early hours of the morning in America. I believe this was a Wednesday. Yes, just imagine little me huddled in my blanket while my wife ignores me trying to sleep. Yeah. (laughs) Watching this on a computer monitor. Show starts at like two one thirty in the morning on the East Coast. Yep, and it's a uh, like with the pre-show a five-plus hour show. It's five hours and fifteen minutes when you fire it up on New Japan World, and 
they tricked me because this time they didn't include the press conference. Yeah. So I thought like, okay, it's like, you know, it's like an hour shorter than that. Once we take out the pre-show and the post-show. Nope. Didn't have the press conference in there. Well, the main show was four and a half hours long. They tricked us on the night of too, because like generally speaking, like the main event will go like 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. And so all of us are expecting like a 15 minute press conference thing at the end. But then the match just keeps going. Yeah, the match went 45 minutes. Nobody saw that coming. No. Uh, we're, of course, at the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, Japan. There are 2,692 uh, paid attendees. And according to the Observer, there was more like 37,000 people in the building. They sold about the same number of tickets as the previous year, but with the heavy paper far more people in attendance than the previous year. That was a genius stroke for them. So they they know that they've hit on some new stars that they want to launch. Right. And it's far more important to get maximum number of eyes on these people as they have their breakthrough moments than it is to actually get money. This is a, a relaunch year. So if you see Naito and all his glory, if you see Omega breakthrough, if you see Goto breakthrough, Takahashi, those people will come back. So those become paying customers next time. And we see that in the following year because when they sell the fucking place out. Yeah. On the Eng- English commentary, we've got uh, Kevin Kelly and Steve Carino. Didn't think Carino was great. I don't know. He's okay. They tried so long to find a color commentator. Like, they've landed on Kevin Kelly, who isn't yeah. what he will be yet. But, like, he winds up becoming, like, the voice of New Japan, and he's phenomenal at it. Like, you can just tell that he really, really cares, and he puts a lot of care and work into, like, learning everything and doing his job. Love him. It's not until they hit on Chris Charlton, who's able to translate the Japanese for us, which is a huge breakthrough. Yeah, instead instead of just being like, oh, what did he say? I think he said something about honor. In this show, you don't really notice it until, like, Okada's speech all the way at the end, where they're just (laughs) both sitting there like, well... (laughs) Uh, he uh, he said something. Yeah, I think this is one about guys. respect. They're all about respect. Steve Carino, who has worked in Japan forever, was like the a, a big fixture in Pro Wrestling Zero One. He's been a commentator in Ring of Honor for a long time. Like he he knows this, but he's just not quite a, the right fit here. Yeah, the but he's a hell of a lot better than Matt Stryker. They had Yoshitatsu the previous year, Jesus. and it felt like he was only there to translate the Japanese. Fucking Yoshitatsu was there because somebody in the office was like, oh, yeah, he knows English. And Yoshitatsu was like, no, I don't. What the fuck? <laughs> I know some. On the pre-show, Michael Elgin won the New Japan Rumble, last eliminating Cheeseburger. Boy, that sounds ridiculous. Cheeseburger gets unbelievably over in front of this audience. I have to tell you, like, they love Cheeseburger. In this match, we had Michael Elgin, Billy Gunn, who seemed super old at the time, and now here we are six years later, and he's still wrestling. Still wrestling. More over than ever. Bone Soldier. Who was Captain New Japan, but he turned bad. Uh, Juice and Thunder Liger. Uh, Kuniyaki Kobayashi. Yep. He was the uh, original rival of the first Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask. 
uh, Manabu Nakanishi. Yeah, you watched him in WCW. He was with all those guys in the mid '90s. He was. I don't yeah. remember him. He uh, he wrestled there as Kurosawa for a little bit. Oh, Kurosawa! I remember Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, was, yeah, yeah. He was beat Randy Savage on one of the early episodes of Nitro. You damn right. Imagine how different the world would have been if that had happened. <laughs> uh, Taguchi. The funky weapon himself. Yes. Uh, Yoshitatsu himself. Funny thing about Yoshitatsu. So his gimmick at this point is that he's the Bullet Club hunter. So he goes around Christ. like trying to beat up members of Bullet Club, but he never succeeds at any no, of that ever. Of course not. It's almost exactly the same as like when Frankie Kazarian was going around trying to like take out members of the inner circle, but never successfully did that. Uh, my homeboy, Yuji Nagata. Your homeboy who's still rolling to this day. Hiroshi Tenzan. Yep. Uh, Hiro Saito. Yep. And believe it or not, Scott Flash Norton. And he fucking looks amazing. Oh, we looked awesome. He looked like he had 10 more years in him here. Just ridiculous. Now, we have to give it up to Michael Elgin for actually being over in Japan. They yeah. love them a big, beefy boy. And he did a good job getting over until he, you know, beat the shit out of his girlfriend and got basically banned. Yeah. That'll happen. Opening package runs through the matches we'll see tonight in order. Yep. Nothing too spectacular here. It was no. fine. There is. So the music that they use for Wrestle Kingdom, and they used to use it for all the pay-per-views, but that like, nah, 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 is maybe the most hype music I've ever heard in my entire life. And to this day, I still listen to it at the gym to get hyped up because it's nice. like the hottest fucking shit. That music gets into my soul. And then we've got our opening match as Tiger Mask W takes on Tiger the Dark. Tiger Mask W is Kota Ibushi under a mask. Yes. Again, so they launched this anime called Tiger Mask W, which is basically yep. just like the relaunch of the Tiger Mask cart- anime from the 80s. And it's literally all about like New Japan, though it's about like the Global Wrestling Federation. Yep. And like... It contains such storylines as... Isn't that what Jeff Jarrett started? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) It contains such storylines as uh, Kenny Omega and the Bullet Club going around to all the chocolate shops in town and buying up all of Toji Makabe's favorite desserts so that he'll be super mad when the match starts. (laughs) You know, fun stuff like that. Sounds delightful. So they decide they want to, like, relaunch Tiger Mask, which is awkward because they employ another Tiger Mask at this point. They didn't take it away from him. And uh, so they have this match. This match, I don't really know if Tiger Mask W was meant to be, like, a continuing thing. I kind of feel like it was just a one-off here to promote the show. But they want to do Tiger the Dark, who's his rival on the anime. Here's the problem. Tiger the Dark pretty much has to be played by a black guy because yep. that's what he is on the show. Look around they don't have roster. any of those, do they? No, they really don't, buddy. <laughs> they couldn't get Shelton Benjamin? Well, ironically, well, they probably could have. I, I, I mean, Ricochet's here. I guess yeah. it could have been Ricochet. Oh my but God, that would have kicked so much ass. It really would have. But it's also just kind of gross. So they, they send out for ACH to come in and play this one yes. match, and then he gets literally no other matches with the company. <laughs> ACH, Jordan Miles from NXT, the guy with the blackface t-shirt. 
Yeah. Oh, boy. I had forgotten about that. It's important to remember that there was a time where he seemed like an unbelievably promising up-and-coming talent. And this match shows this off because despite the fact that they're goofily wearing these masks, this kind of rules. Yeah, this was a good match. The the crowd wasn't super into it, but I just, like, the Japanese crowds tend to be very quiet in the opening matches, I find. Yeah, especially, there's obviously no heat behind this. Nobody was watching this anime. It wasn't particularly successful. You can believe me there. The crowd all knows this is a bushi, right? I'm, yes. In fact, the commentators even make a point of, they're not allowed to say it's a bushi, but they keep joking around like, like he does oh, all that the looks familiar. Yeah. yeah. Aside from the finisher, which is not a Bushi's finisher, it's the Tiger Mask driver. Uh, like he does a Bushi's like jumping off the turnbuckles thing that no one has ever done in the history of wrestling other than him. Yeah, he does the springboard moonsault, the tiger suplex. He does the Abushi stuff. I mean, it is what it is. Like it's, it's perfectly fine. It, it gives us a Bushi back, which is all that really matters. He gets the win in six minutes after the Tiger Bomb. It's a fine opener, nothing special. Yeah, there's nothing particularly interesting here. In our second match, we've got the Young Bucks defending the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Titles against Rapungi Vice, um, the team of Rocky Romero and Trent Barretta. Now, this is actually kind of a big deal because they always do clusterfuck Junior yeah. Heavyweight Tag Matches. But the company has so much faith in Rapungi Vice and the Young Bucks that they let them just be by themselves. Yeah. The reason being is that fans don't normally believe enough in juniors to give a shit about the junior heavyweight tag belts. So they just kind of throw a bunch of dudes in and have them do a car crash. Here they let them actually do a match, which is a pretty big deal. The Bucks come out with four different sets of tag belts. How awesome did they look? Now, in fairness, one of them was about they invented themselves. <laughs> okay, the super so kick party titles. The IWGP Junior Tag Titles. They've got yes. the Ring of Honor Tag Belts, the PWG Tag Belts, and yeah, their own made-up super kick party belts. But still, yep. four belts is pretty awesome. It's pretty fucking awesome, man. This is the point where, like, it's funny to remember that the Bucks, before all the AEW stuff happened, we're just a team of, like, little Hardy Boy ripoffs from California who just kept going into new promotions and, like, lighting them on fire. Like, everywhere they went, they'd have, like, the exact same match, but it was, like, the coolest match anyone had ever seen. And then they'd sell a billion T-shirts and move on to the next town. They built this whole empire off the back of just understanding marketing better than everyone else. They're one of the greatest tag teams of all time. Like, there is no, there's no, if you're denying, I think anybody who denies that at this point is just a hater. There's so much hate directed at them these days, which is like, to the point where it's kind of weird. I know some of it is like people choosing punk side or whatever, but like, they're very hateable guys. And like, yeah, that's, they're that's sort of the thing. Yeah. You fucking marks. But like, if you're talking about like the top one, two, three tag teams of all time, they're in it. And I don't give a shit if people don't agree. The Here they're calling out the Hardys on the way to the ring, which is fun. Yeah. The Bucks go to walk out. Romero and Beretta chase them up the ramp, but then they both get super kicked. And the Bucks run back to the ring to try to take the count out win. I loved that. The fans burst out laughing, which is yes. fantastic. It's hard to get a laugh out of the Japanese fans. 
Beretta and Romero just barely beat the count back into the ring. Um, Beretta gets super kicked and then takes a really nasty bump on the ring apron. And then Romero gets double super kicked. I do want to point out, too, that this is kind of Roppongi Vice's last chance. They'd actually broken up earlier because they just didn't think that they could get the tag belts back again. They've reformed for one last shot. And then if they can't do this here, they're done. Yeah. Uh, Beretta gets the first significant offense for Rapongi Vice when he hits a tornado DDT. And then the Bucks accidentally kick each other in the face. That was pretty funny. Yep, that'll happen. <laughs> Fire and super kicks off everywhere. When there's a party, you know, some stuff goes yeah. around. Sometimes you get super kicked in the face. It's the cost <laughs> of doing business. Uh, Romero takes a hot tag. He hits a double clothesline on the fourth try after the Bucks ducked the first three times. That was some good comedy. It really was. I can't believe they did so much. They had the confidence to do so much comedy in this match. Yeah. Uh, he goes for sliced bread, but it gets blocked. He slips out of a tombstone attempt. The Bucks double team him with a double superplex, but he fights it off. Uh, Matt Jackson tries a superplex, but Beretta runs in with a huge super German suplex. That was quite a bump. What a fucking spot. Trent goes for a somersault plancha, but he misses and he just splats on the floor as the announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Trent is out of the match. Like, it is a handicap match at this point. It's worth mentioning that, like, Trent Beretta is bizarrely large for a junior heavyweight. Yeah. So he's like, but he's doing all the same spots and stuff that they are. But when he splats on the outside like this, it just seems much bigger than when the smaller guys do it. Romero takes a huge amount of punishment as the Bucks hit a bunch of super kicks, a buckle power bomb, and an elevated 450 splash. But he just keeps kicking out of stuff. Legendary resilience for Rocky Romero. They set up for more bang for your buck, but Romero gets a crucifix pin out of nowhere, and I think Beretta jumped in at the last second to hold back one of the bucks on the yeah, pin. Yeah, he did. A uh, really good match. Romero looked like an absolute badass taking that beating and still getting the win. Rocky Romero is one of the unsung heroes of the modern era of New Japan because he was just kind of always in the junior heavyweight tag division, just kind of being there. Like, all throughout the entire thousands, 2010s, whatever. These days, he's, like, the guy who, like, is their American liaison. He got us Sasha Banks. He's the guy who makes that happen. He's the guy who does the deals with AEW to make Forbidden Door happen. He's the guy who makes your dreams come true. Next up, we've got a trios gauntlet match for the never open weight six man tag titles what is this bullshit this okay is... so because they didn't do the four-way match they got to do this to get everybody on the card exactly we didn't do a cluster there so guess who gets the cluster this time this belt you've got Four teams competing here? Or three? Yes, here's here's the thing. You really have one team and then three stables who just pick the three most random members of that stable. Yeah, like, as I'm saying these names, picture these guys hanging out at the club together. Yeah. Taguchi, Japan, we've got David Finley, yes, Fit Finley's giant son, uh, Ricochet, yes, Ricochet, and Satoshi Kojima. They are just 
Taguchi Japan has randomly been named other things. It's just the random collection of baby faces who have no stable to belong to. And then we've got Los Ingrenobles de Japan, uh, Bushi, Evil, and Sonata. Which is just all the members of that stable at this point who aren't Naito. So that's a full stable. That team kicks ass. Bullet Club, Bad Luck Fale, Yujiro Takahashi, and Hangman Adam Page, who, I gotta be honest, I had no memory of the fact that he was in Bullet Club. Yes, he was in Bullet Club because this is where the, everyone meets him, and they decide to form AEW just to create a promotion to push Adam Page in, because they love yeah. him so much. This is like the NWO B-team to end all B-teams. And the yes, funniest part about them as a team is that Yujiro Takahashi has a pimp character. That's his character. So on a show that's basically completely rated G, there is always like one brief segment where he brings out With a hookers. bunch of strippers. Yeah, a bunch yeah. of fucking like strippers and hookers. And fucking Pieter wearing literally nothing. Like absolutely nude on six-inch heels in the ring. And like Hangman Page walking behind all of them like trying not to look at him. It's like, I have a wife. Yep. Uh, uh, get in front of me, Fale. I don't want to look. And Chaos. Jado, Will Ospreay, and Yoshihashi. Will Ospreay being in this is so funny. And the funny thing is, there's a match you could put together here that would rule beyond belief. If this was just Will Ospreay versus yeah. Hangman Page versus Ricochet versus, like, Sonata, this Imagine is, the, like, the match of the night. Yeah. Each of these teams, other than Igonobles, has one good person on them. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, we start with Bullet Club against Chaos. It's a gauntlet, so whoever wins this goes on to face another team and so on. There's never been a compelling gauntlet, because it's never... Like, you just know that there's a bunch of jobber teams in there, and you're wasting time, because who cares? It's really just that these are the four stables, so we got to represent each of them, I guess. This went on way longer than I had any interest in it going. It's only 16 minutes, but it feels like 60. It really does. I mean, this was a very long show. We could have lived with a much shorter match, but it's, I mean, just the entrances alone took up another 10 minutes. Yeah. So like somebody would pin somebody and then you get like full entrances that take five minutes and then there we go. Osprey takes a hot tag, he knocks everyone out to the floor, and then he does a handspring into a moonsault onto all of them. Just uh, typical Will Osprey stuff. I really like, I love Will Osprey now. Everyone does, obviously. But I loved, like, baby Will Osprey here, where he was just doing whatever the shit he could think of to get noticed. Yeah, he does a series, just like shooting star press, moonsault, corkscrew senton onto each guy. He's like, I'm going to get literally 45 seconds of offense in this match and i'm gonna make people remember my 45 seconds uh jado tags in he gets hit with a snap det by takahashi and pinned jado being in this match would be like if the ministry of darkness included paul bearer in a match like what the fuck (laughs) is he even doing in here i don't know Ingernobles are in next. Uh, after two minutes, Sonata gets Takahashi in a dragon sleeper, and they get the win. Yep. And then the final team in is Taguchi Japan. They're defending these belts, which 
are not worth anything. It's just so funny to see David Finley, who's like fresh out of the dojo, pasty white, terrible look. 16 years old. Satoshi Kojima, 50 years old, legendary, like, mini world champions have her, and Ricochet, who looks like a superstar, are just randomly here together holding belts. Ricochet and Finley do nice uh, stereo dives out to the floor. That was pretty cool. Yeah, they had been actually teaming a little bit off and on, so they have some chemistry. Kojima's just here. Kojima with his signature chops in the corner. The crowd goes wild for that. You just love to see a guy who's been around and been yeah. popular for so long that, like, even the smallest spot, like, the fans are like, yeah, I've been watching that since I was six. Fuck yeah. Bushi catches Ricochet out of the air with a code breaker. Okay, so that was wild. So the idea is is that he gets, like, monkey flipped up into the air, Ricochet does. <laughs> and then Bushi comes off the top rope, but, like, Ricochet doesn't quite get high enough. So they kind of just both crumble to the ground. Like, it it still looks good. But if they had pulled off that spot for real, that might be the greatest spot of all time. Oh. Bushi mists Kojima. Evil hits him with a powerbomb. Kojima kicks out. Evil hits an STO and gets the pin, and we've got new champions. I, I don't know. It, it, I didn't hate it, but it was too long. I, I never really liked the idea of the six-man tag belts. And I think I understand that in New Japan where you have all these stables, right? Yeah. It, a stable championship makes sense to me. But having it be six-man just kind of limits you in weird ways. I'd almost rather it just be like the, your stable has the belt. You can defend it in any kind of match That's with any of your members. a fascinating idea that it could be a tag match. It could be a singles match. It could be a six-man, an eight-man, a ten-man. That's actually super interesting. And if, like, the, the feud between your guys was hot enough, you'd have to get, like, your top guy. So suddenly it becomes, like, Okada versus Jay White for the stable belt instead of the world title. Like, that's interesting to me. The six-man just means you get the shittiest members of those stables in six-man matches. <laughs> Next up, we have something very near and dear to my heart. Oh, it's yeah. Cody, Cody's New Japan debut and the debut of the American Nightmare. So functionally, this is not Cody's like first match after leaving WWE no. or anything. He's been wrestling the Indies. No, he's he been was on. He showed up in TNA. Yeah, like yeah. he's been around, but. This feels like him, like, hatching out of the egg, fully evolved. Like, he's got the music, he's bulked up, he's got the look, he's got the robe, the pants. Like, this is Cody. This is superstar Cody. Yeah. I had not seen any of his stuff in between him leaving WWE and debuting here. I didn't, I didn't watch Ring of Honor at the time. I wasn't watching TNA at the time. Like, I wasn't paying enough attention. So he does these promos coming in that are awesome. And he's yeah. basically like smoking a cigar in a dimly lit room like the nightmare is coming yeah and then he comes out here just with the leather jacket with the american flag on the back and he's still got some of those weird ticks that he would do as like wb cody Rhodes. like some of his stuff is like a little bit stardust still he's like working that out of his system still wiping his nose and yeah and he doesn't have the blonde hair yet but he's really close like you 90, can see it 90 percent of the way there like, you can absolutely understand that he's going to get to where he gets to. And bless him for joining Bullet Club. I mean, everybody joined it at the time, so it didn't feel that special in that moment. But it helps him find that version of himself. Yeah. 
And changes the course of wrestling history. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, man. Um, Juice Robinson is actually getting really over at this point. Juice Robinson, who was a failed NXT guy. CJ Parker. Does anybody remember him being a hippie environmentalist in NXT? And he sucked ass. I did a cute scouts of <laughs> CJ Parker, and I said he was going to be a miserable failure, and it's some of the biggest crow I ever had to eat. He's come into New Japan as just like a goofy, eccentric weirdo, and it's working for him. <laughs> He's just a, a, he went through the dojo, not like the full dojo experience, but just to gain credibility, because the fans don't really take you seriously unless you go through the, the dojo or you're a name from somewhere else. So he does that, comes in as a mid-card babyface, and he does really great. They fight out to the floor. Juice sets Cody up for a cannonball against the railing, but he comes in too high, and it looks like he hurt himself for real on this. Yeah. It looked like he like, busted great. his kidney open doing that shit. Cody works on the leg that Juice injured, hitting the railing. Juice gets the advantage back. He goes to the top and hits a crossbody. But Cody rolls through it into an Indian death lock. Juice manages to get to the ropes. Cody keeps working on the knee. Juice goes for a power bomb, but his knee buckles. Juice tries for a kill switch. Cody counters into the crossroads, gets the one, two, three. Solid debut for Cody. And then he goes outside to the floor and fucks with Steve Carino because Carino has a long-running feud with the Rhodes family. Carino mentions on commentary that he might be the only person ever to wrestle all three generations of the Rhodes family. Maybe. And that's pretty fucking cool. That is a great trivia question, actually. I'm sure, like, somebody else did. There's but... somebody else. Who would have worked Dusty in, like... God, the thing is, Dusty didn't really wrestle once he went back to WCW. So you really look at... They have to have been in the WWF in the early 90s. So like and then this... worked Dustin, which you could do a lot of places. Right. Maybe Jeff Jarrett. But he never re- worked Cody, did he? He hasn't yet, but maybe he will at some point here. No, Did Jared would never Big wrestle. Show as the Giant ever wrestle Dusty Rhodes? I don't think so. Dusty was retired by that point. Then, yeah, I don't really know who could have done it, not to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah, good one for Steve Carino. Cody gets doesn't get an amazing reaction from the fans when he comes out, but he gets a pretty good one when he's leaving. Like, the fans know who the Rhodes family is. They were pretty like Dusty came over a lot in the yeah. 80s. But and it's goofy that he's still just Cody. It's easy to get into Cody. Like he's got by this point he's got natural star power. It kind of exposes him a little bit, not in a bad way, but like puts him he could have really blown it here. Like yeah. He doesn't wrestle this style. He wrestles more of a WWE and Southern style. He has, and has to adapt that to make it work in New Japan. And he's wrestling a singles match for 10 minutes in the dead middle of this card right before intermission. Like, it's it's a bad spot to be in. But he makes it work. Next up, for some inexplicable reason, we've got a Ring of Honor world title match on this show. Kyle O'Reilly defends against Adam Cole. Well, a lot of what's going on in this company is because of the New Japan Ring of Honor partnership Yeah. that started last year. And one of the big things is the only reason we have Cody is because he's signed to Ring of Honor. He's not signed to New Japan. Yeah. Like he's 
So all of these Ring of Honor guys have joined Bullet Club, Adam Cole and Cody, and the Bucks are actually Ring yeah. of Honor talent too. And so they've come over, which has been a huge boon to New Japan. They don't really get it in the other direction nearly as much. I don't know what Ring of Honor ever really got out of it. Sorry, Ring of Honor. They got a couple of those like huge sellout shows that yeah. only sold out because of New Japan, so that's nice. <laughs> they got to sell out Madison Square Garden. They got to say that they sold out Madison Square Garden, when in truth, no, that. the fuck they didn't. <laughs> so O'Reilly beat Cole for the belt at Final Battle. Cole has a chance to become the first three-time Ring of Honor world champion here. Hooray. And really, of the late-stage Ring of Honor, this is the biggest feud they have. Because these guys were tag team partners when they first started up in Future Shock. And they both developed and become genuine main eventers in Ring of Honor of their own. Adam Cole's on the cusp of breaking out into something special. Kyle O'Reilly isn't. Though it's ironic that Kyle O'Reilly actually really gets over in Japan. I loved Kyle O'Reilly here. I thought he was awesome in this match. I loved the submission style he worked. He was not properly appreciated at this time. I think we have to say that. Truthfully, he should have stayed in Japan. And he's even, I think, said in interviews yeah. that he probably should have. Because like Never they saw team up with Bobby Fish. Yeah, they saw a ton in him. Pers- they had him wrestle a match with Shibata, like a 15-minute match. Wow. They're calling him the martial artist. Like, they see money in him. Reminds me of Jerry Flynn, which is the highest compliment I can give somebody. You're the only person in the world who would say that as a compliment. <laughs> you and Goldberg, I guess. Cole spits in O'Reilly's face, which I don't think is within the code of honor. No, I don't think so either. Also worth mentioning, Adam Cole's theme song coming out here is just him repeatedly saying Adam, Adam Cole, Cole, baby. baby. But like over and over and over and over again. It's the it's like the most heat seeking theme yes. song since Eddie Guerrero in the the cell phone. They do a thing where Cole keeps trying to yell at him, Cole, baby, and O'Reilly catches him in a submission before he can finish it. I loved that. And Cole's so mad because he's got to say it. Yeah. He's getting blue so balled, man. Source of his power. <laughs> I have to begrudgingly give Adam Cole credit. That was an incredible babyface promo he cut last week. Look, I don't think either one of us is the biggest Adam Cole fan in the world. Uh, it's probably not even anything against him. He just represents, like, a dark time for NXT <clears throat> to me. He presided over the death of NXT, yes. basically. But it's not his fault. And he's a tremendous no. talent, and he's very charismatic and very good, and whatever. So I'm glad to have him back. I don't love him, but I'm glad to have him back. Uh, Cole hits O'Reilly in the shoulder with a chair out on the floor. Um, This is a really just good physical hard-hitting match. Like, the crowd does not really care at the beginning, but they start getting into this as it's going on. These guys are beating the shit out of each other. Yeah, if you remember from our last show, they did, like, Jay Lethal versus Michael Elgin as this match, and it dies a death. Even though Elgin's way more over than either one of these two guys are, the fans just don't care about the stakes. The the belt means nothing to them. But these guys whoop each other's asses, and the fans start really going for it. This is also the last match before intermission. So this is the hardest match to get over on the whole card. Like, people are beating the crowd to the concession stands in the bathroom at this point. So this match is so good, like, people are in line in concession like, huh, what's going on? Let me get back to my seat and see what's going on here. The finish comes when Cole gets out of an ankle lock and then hits four super kicks and the last shot to get the pin. Good match. 
he does this great thing that I love where he went like he's in like such an adrenaline rush at the end of the match as he's like screaming. And then as soon as he wins, he has this like shocked look on his face. Like he's trying to figure out like I actually won. Holy yeah. shit. I won. Yeah. Like he he blacked out here. It was such a big moment. Yeah. He gets it and he looks in the camera as he's walking out and says, I'm the greatest Ring of Honor champion of all time, which technically speaking, you probably have to say that he is, <laughs> even though it feels wrong. <laughs> Next up, we've got an IWGP tag title match. We've got the Gorillas of Destiny, Tama Tonga and Tonga Loa against Chaos, uh, Tomohiro Ishii and Toro Yanu. And GHB, Togi Makabe, and Tomoaki Hanma. So this is supposed to be a match between the Gorillas of Destiny, who are the champions, and Makabe and Hanma, who won the World Tag League in December. But Toroyano, being the mischief-making imp that he is, has stolen both the, the tag titles and the trophies from the World Tag League and held them at ransom to get a title match here. Yeah. Okay, I loved yeah. Yano comes out with the trophy and the tag belts and all four guys just start beating the shit out of him. Yeah, he comes out holding all of it, doing his whole entrance. And then Ishii's <laughs> just behind him like, all right. Ishii's like, if, if there's that one guy in your friend group who's like kind of a dickhead and we all yeah. know it. But like if if he started getting his ass kicked, you'd have to help him because he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Might let him get hit a few times first, but yeah, you jump in there. That's Ishii's vibe all over. Um, Hanma is, of course, Captain Headbutt. Yeah, he is. That's all he's got going, but he's hugely over for it. Yes, he will go to the top rope, go for his diving headbutt, and if he hits it, they win, and if he misses, they lose. And they almost always lose. Yes. Almost never works. Is is it him? They're always clowning like he's never won a match when he clearly has won a bunch of matches. Yeah, when he's like won the World Tag League and he's been tag team yeah. championship before, and they're just like, oh yeah, Hanman a zero in one thousand losing streak. Um, the language in this match is not appropriate for children. No, Tama Tonga and Tonga Loa. They're really taking advantage of the fact that they know that the crowd doesn't really know what they're saying. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not like there's any kids watching new this on New Japan World. Yeah. But, yeah, they do have a good time with that. Now, Tamatonga is not who he would eventually become. These days, he's, like, a credible main eventer, and he's, like, built his body up real crazy, and he's amazing. They're still in like kind of a formulative stage. None of these are great tag teams. They're just, they're really not. No. Uh, Powerbomb diving headbutt combo from Hanma, but Ishii breaks up the pin. Uh, Gorilla warfare on Makabe, but he's not the legal man. Yano and Ishii get the pin after Ishii hits both members of the Gorillas of Destiny with a clothesline and Yano schoolboys Loa. It was fine. Nothing special, but entertaining little tag match. Every promotion needs somebody like Toru Yano, who, like, will never win a world title or even sniff it. But you just need a guy in the mid-card who, like, you're always happy to see. You know what I mean? Like, he's just a goofball who does funny stuff, and it's just fun to see him do it. So, 
so far this has been a perfectly fine show, but nothing special. But now the show beyond is about to begin. These last four matches are unbelievable. This is what I love so much about Wrestle Kingdom is that in every single Wrestle Kingdom from like eight on, there's a point at which it's been like, all right, you've been enjoying what would have been like the best Ring of Honor show you've ever seen, but like it's been okay. You're about to watch back to back to back to back four matches that will blow your fucking mind. Yeah. So like if you want to watch this, but you don't have four and a half hours to do it, you can just just, cut to the last. Just just start here with Kushida versus Takahashi. Watch these last four matches and it's two hours or so. That's really what the intermission is for. The first half is just to get everyone on the card so they get paid, and the second half is what you came to see. So we've got the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, Kushida versus Himoro Takahashi. Um, Takahashi is just back from excursion. He's part of Los Igernobles. Um, He looks like a superstar as he comes out here. It's so funny because he went to Mexico also, and he was uh, Tamatachi while he was down there. And he had a series of matches with Dragon Lee, who just got signed to WWE, by the way, which are some of the most suicidal matches that have ever been contested. Like literally like full on jumping 15 feet in the air and taking flat back bumps on the floor, flying into the crowd, like crazy, crazy, unheard of shit. They got famous for that. So he comes back here, and his reputation from that like gives him the character of the ticking time bomb, a person so fucking suicidal and insane that there's no telling what he'll do at any given moment. He's over before he ever wrestles a match. Like This character hits so strong so fast that like he is probably their top junior heavyweight here, and I don't think he's even wrestled yet. <laughs> Kushida is the undisputed ace of the juniors division at this point. He beat Omega for the belt at Wrestle Kingdom last year. He traded it with Bushi over the course of the year. This is his fifth uh, junior heavyweight title reign. Like, he's the man in this division. He has been named as Justin Li- by Justin Liger yes. as his, like, lineal, like, yeah. like son. He's like, the successor to Liger, the ace of the junior division. And I want you to remember that, because at the end of this There's match... There's a great moment here. You can chuck him in the dumpster. <laughs> uh, first big move is a brutal sunset flip powerbomb from the apron to the floor on Kushida. He sells it like he is absolutely dead. He was not prepared for what Takahashi is. Takahashi is all offense. Never seen something to somebody like this. Like eventually, then the doctors come out and check on him. They're like putting the flashlight in his eyes. Yeah. Eventually Takahashi has to slow this style down because he breaks his neck in a match with Dragon Lee a little like a couple years later. But while he does this, like there's nothing like it, man. Kushida crawls back into the ring and manages to hit a series of close clotheslines. Takahashi hits a German suplex that drops Kushida right on the back of his head. And then I think he tries for a hurricane run off the top rope, but they botch it and just like bounce off the ropes. Yeah, he was trying to like, I've never seen that spot before or since, but he was trying to like hurricane run him to the outside from the inside, but it just doesn't quite work. That's a bad idea. Yeah. 
Takahashi then hits a senton down to the floor. He just barely clips Kushida on the way down. He takes the brunt of that. Yeah, this is the spot I'm talking about. And he would do this in Mexico where there are no mats on the fucking floors. Jesus Christ. Uh, back in the ring, Takahashi hits a knee drop for a two count. Kushida comes back with a Pele kick for his first offense in a while. They go out to the floor. Takahashi tries another dive off the apron, but Kushida catches him in a cross arm breaker. He breaks the hold and throws Takahashi back in the ring. Should have just taken the count out win. That's actually a great spot because he catches him in it and he holds him for like the full 18 seconds before he's got to get back in. And it was funny because he just appeared on AEW television this week and did this same spot to Darby Allen. And that was just as cool then. It sure was. Um, uh, both these guys have wrestled in AEW recently. Yes, they have. Takahashi, who MJF referred to as Take a Shitta. No, that was a uh, Kaneska. Uh, that, that was, was the Takeshita. wrong guy. Yeah, different guy. No, different guy. Yeah. Back in the ring, Kushida's in full control. He keeps working the arm. He gets Takahashi in a Kimura. Takahashi manages to get Kushida up on his shoulders. Kushida rolls through into a pin. He reapplies the Kimura. Takahashi gets out, and they exchange punches. Kushida charges, gets launched into the turnbuckle with a belly-to-belly suplex. I never like seeing somebody take a like suplex or powerbomb into the turnbuckle. I don't think that's a good idea. I always think people don't understand how dangerous those spots are because you can't hit flush. Like, you're yeah. just, by definition, you're not going to hit the way you expect to. Ended Sting's career. Well, for a while. For a while. <laughs> he got better somehow. He's still diving out of the rafters to this day. <laughs> Takahashi sets Kushida up on the top rope and hits a devastating Frankensteiner that only gets two. Just dropped him right on his fucking head here. Spiked his ass. Takahashi runs Kushida into the corner with a Death Valley driver, then follows up with a Death Valley driver for the pin. This was an incredible match. On any other show, this is the match of the night. Instant classic would have set the world on fire. I think this is the third best match on this show. Yeah, I like this more than the Shibata match that comes after this. But, but yeah, like, it's not it's not as good as yeah the last two matches. This was a stunning upset at the time. Like it's Takahashi demolished him. Takahashi is brand new, and like Kushida is the ace of this division, and Takahashi doesn't just destroy him, dismantle him, completely blitz him in a way he couldn't have expected. He wins this belt, and like Kushida becomes an afterthought. Because Takahashi is so charismatic, so interesting, so dynamic, he becomes the ace at the end of this night. Like, it's already him. By the end of this match, it's him. They cut to Liger at the announce table, and he's clearly unhappy with the result. Kelly and Carino speculate that he might be upset because he feels like Takahashi could surpass him. And in truth... Like, in in the years that have passed, I don't think there's anyone you could compare Takahashi to except Liger in terms of, like, what they've done for the junior heavyweight division and accomplished in that. He's had the opportunity to go heavyweight, and he declined it, saying that he wanted to make junior heavyweights a thing. And, like, that, he wants – 
a junior heavyweight match to main event Wrestle Kingdom before he retires. That's all he cares about. And he Do might think do that'll it. that'll ever happen? Uh, if they can find somebody as over as he is, yeah. that's yeah. the problem. Next up, we've got the never open weight title with Shibata defending against Hiroki Goto. Um, as a reminder, the never title is basically the grizzled hard ass title. Yes, what was originally supposed to be basically the <laughs> NXT title yeah. has become the motherfucker, we're going to headbutt each other world championship. Some real, some clubbering and some headbutting going on here. Now, this is also Goto's redemption show. That kind of gets lost in all this because it's really Naito's redemption show. But yeah. Goto has been around for forever. He's won some New Japan Cups. I believe he won a G1 Climax. Like, he's always been that guy on the cusp, but he never, ever, ever, ever wins the big match. He's lost to, like, every fucking Wrestle yeah. Kingdom. He's, like, it's not that he's a joke. It's just at this point, the fans find it difficult to believe that he could ever get there. Yeah, so after last year, where he lost to Ishii, he goes away for a while. Like, he kind of tries to find himself. And he comes back, and here he's facing literally his childhood best friend, Shibata. They went to school together, they trained together, they broke in together, the whole thing. And he's got to beat Shibata to prove to himself that he can do it. Meanwhile, Shibata's it? just here. Shibata literally says on the way in, will you stop talking to me about this corny childhood best friend bullshit? Yeah. I'm going to beat his ass. <laughs> Um, so as you would expect, this match is incredibly stiff. Yeah. They just kind of, it's kind of take turns hitting each other as hard as they can. This is not, perhaps not that different than the despicable world slap league that, uh, TBS is currently televising much to their shame and dishonor. It is interesting because like, there is a lot of, like, I can see the similarities between those two things. The only redeeming thing here is that. There's so much of a story in it. Like, the whole point of this is that Goto has to prove it's not just that he needs to win this match. That's not enough. He needs to prove that he's as tough as Shibata, as good as Shibata, and that he can beat Shibata. And he has to do all three. So he basically has to say, Shibata, hit me as hard as you can so I can prove that I can take it before I beat you. That's basically like, the premise. <laughs> they're not really hitting each other as hard as they possibly can. No, they're hitting they're each other pretty damn hard. But they're letting they're pulling up a little bit. You can roll with the punches here. Yeah. I mean, tragically, Shabbat is going to have his terrible brain injury a couple months after this. Or he uh, did he headbutt Tanahashi or Okada? I can't. It was Okada. Headbutted Okada so hard, his brain blood. See, that's the problem is that, like, headbutts start working their way into these matches. And, of course, you can work a headbutt as long as you – especially, like, Goto works headbutts, but he's got long hair. He's not actually hitting anybody with that shit. Yeah, I I just – yeah, you compare the difference between hitting somebody with a really hard chop or slap to the chest. Yeah, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to do any real damage to you. You know, your chest is going to be battered and maybe bloody, but, like – Headbutting someone for real, you can mess up your spine, you can mess up your brain. That's right. serious business. Yeah. That's where this started going too far when Shibata just started shoot headbutting people. And this is like the lie of Enochiism, right? So the Never Open Way title really becomes like the strong style championship. Yeah. Like, this is the kind of matches Enoki wanted guys to have. And this is why you don't do it. It can be 
incredibly compelling. Like, everyone always talks about that Shibata and Ishii match that they had together that was, like, an unbelievable physical spectacle. And that's the good end. The bad end is what happens to Shibata with Okada. And, like, you can't have one without the other, which is why I just don't believe in that version of this. That said, this is a good match and very compelling. And when Goto Goto wins... What made this great was not that they were hitting each other so hard. I mean, that, it helped. But the story of Goto getting his redemption and getting his big win and beating Shibata, who had totally written him off, was what was compelling here. Absolutely. That, the, the... The time at the end where it looks like Goto's going to lose and he kicks out, the fans come alive. And in that last, like, streak as he hits, like, move, 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 and he finally hits his new finishing move that he developed specifically to beat Shibata, and he wins, the fans explode. Yeah, like, this is Goto finally winning the big one. He's had a million shots at the IWGP title and never won it. I mean, this isn't the IWGP title, but hey, he beat Shibata for a title at Wrestle Kingdom. It's a big deal. And the funny thing about Goto is, like, you can always warm him up. Like, I genuinely believe that somewhere down the line you could put the world title on him for a little bit, and it would work because the fans love him. They just don't believe in him because he keeps losing. He just Ooh. won the tag titles with uh, Yoshihashi. Huge deal when they beat FTR. Fans came on glued for it. And now we're going to level up again as we've got our Intercontinental title match with Naito defending against Tanahashi. Oh boy, where we're going, we don't need Rhodes. So this is, as much as this year is about Omega, and of course we're going to lay out all of the story about how we get to this point without Omega, this is really Naito's year. This is Naito's promotion. When he comes back from Mexico, he captures the imagination of this audience in a way that I don't think anyone else ever has. And he he kind of gets lost by American fans because he doesn't really want anything to do with America. He's never coming for a forbidden door. He hates American wrestling. He's does not interested in learning English. He's just not interested in it. I feel like the character doesn't really stand out to American fans because, like, on some level, he's kind of playing an American, if that makes sense. Like, a America, a less respectful, more whatever-I-don't-care type of culture. Yeah, the premise of Los Ingobernables is that, like, he's ungovernable, which is literally what that word means. Yeah. And that, like, he's going to do whatever the fuck he wants to do. He's not chained by, like, respect politics like everyone else in this company. Like, he's just kind of—he laughs in people's face. He tells them tranquilo, which literally just means calm down. Like, hey, 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 why are you so why are you so Terrible. worked out of shape, man? All we did was beat you up and put you through a table. Whatever, bro. No big deal. It's chill. And that pisses—and, like, that's supposed to be a heel gimmick. But what actually does is it unlocks the charisma in him that he couldn't get out before as a baby face. And he becomes so utterly compelling. Like— they, Los Ingobernables sells, like, half of the merchandise in this company. Like, to That's this crazy. day, they are the top act. He is the top guy. They had to, uh, they put alerts. So, in this Wrestle Kingdom, they let them cheer for the first time in forever. But they had to have a special section for sustained cheering. Because <laughs> they were terrified that the fans were going to chant Naito for his whole five-minute entrance. And thus yeah. break the law and shut, shut the show down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, the crowd is wild here. They're so much louder than they've, than they've been for any previous match. This might be the wildest I've ever seen a Japanese crowd. Like, they're hot for Tanahashi. Tanahashi's still mega so- mega superstar, second biggest star in the company, technically. And, like, this feud is hot, too. As you touched upon, like, there's heat, but to, Naito needs to prove that he surpassed Tanahashi, not just because of that poll vote, but also because he was supposed to replace him. Yeah. Tanahashi was meant to replace Muda, and he did. And Naito was meant to be the next Tanahashi, but he failed. He fucked up and he failed again and again until he had to go and become something else. And he's bitter at having lived in Tanahashi's shadow for five years. And here's his chance. If he can beat Tanahashi here, he's his own man. He's a star of his own. He's finally made it. But if Tanahashi beats him, back to Mexico with you, jobber boy. Crowd is very much split, if anything, favoring Naito. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever seen anyone get cheered over Tanahashi since, like, Wrestle Kingdom 4. Very interestingly, Tanahashi takes a cheap shot on a break. He works heel. Naito's the heel coming into this match. I just want to make that clear. Like, the fans love him, but he's functionally the heel. Tanahashi wrestles heel this whole match. Uh, the announcers talk about the speculation that this would be the main event instead of Okada versus Omega. I just picture Okada walking this, watching this on a monitor and being like, oh, that motherfucker, Tanahashi. <laughs> just slashing his tires in the back. It happened again. Naito goes to work on Tanahashi's leg. He locks on an Indian death lock, but Tanahashi manages to get to the ropes. Tanahashi turns the tide with a drop kick. He hits a dragon screw that drops Naito's legs onto the ropes. That was pretty cool. I really love that this match becomes like uh, Tanahashi's got a gimpy knee that he always has because he's old. And Naito is like depends completely on his legs. So this just becomes like who can work the other leg the best. Yeah. And Tanahashi always works the legs to set up the high fly flow, right? Yeah, he does. Um, sling blade by Tanahashi on the apron. Tanahashi hits a high fly flow all the way down to the floor. That's devastating. I mean, that's that's a hell of a move to do when Okada's catching you. Naito's much smaller than Okada. That's a hell of a spot to take. Um, I love... I haven't really talked about the cinematography. I just love how they shoot these shows. It yes. is so much better than how WWE shoots. Somebody mentioned on Twitter uh, that in WWE, you have to find the camera, and in yes. Japan, the camera finds you. And that's the perfect encapsulation of this. Like, yeah. they have, like, 30 cameras around ringside, and they always have the right camera in the right place. But the, the cameramen are chasing after the wrestlers to get the right shot. Yeah. Whereas in WWE, it's, you're always like, okay, where are the cameras? we got to work our match toward the cameras. And that's why Kevin Dunn's dream scenario was the Thunderdome, where he has a camera in every inch of the whole building, and he can just get whatever shot he wants. But that doesn't feel like a sporting event to me. This time, like, they never really miss shots, but you can, like, see the cameraman, like, rushing to get the shot and, like, getting up underneath so Tanahashi looks like he's jumping into your living room, and that's the coolest shit. I love that. I love the way the camera zooms out when uh, Okada's going to do the Rainmaker. That's the simplest thing in the world, but, like... So much of Okada's matches are built around the idea that, like, the whole first half of the match, he's just trying to wear him down. When he hits the pose, he will now try to hit the Rainmaker for 15 consecutive minutes. And if he can do it, he wins. And if he can't, he loses. 
Tanahashi goes back to the top. Naito crotches him, hits a Frankensteiner, and follows up with a German suplex into a bridge for a two count. Wow. Hell yeah. Naito with a pump handle into a side slam. He puts on the Indian Deathlock again. Tanahashi manages to turn it into a cloverleaf, but Naito makes it to the ropes. That was quite a reversal. Man, these guys are doing great shit together. This is, yeah. Dragon screw, then a pair of sling blades from Tanahashi. He goes to the top. He hits the high fly flow. Then he goes back up, goes for it again, but he misses. Uh, Naito hits Destinado. He goes for it again, but Tanahashi counters into a neck breaker. They exchange forearms. They each go after each other's legs. Tanahashi with a dragon suplex for the two count. Then he explodes up to the top rope for the high fly flow. He hits it to his back, which is always the setup. Yes. And then he turn Naito turns over, and this is it. Match is yep. over. He's about to hit Kill it shot. again. Kill shot. He jumps off. Naito gets his knees up. This is the stiffest splash into knees I've ever seen. Oh, this looked horrible. Like, Tanahashi does not pull up at all. He goes for the full high-five flow, and, like, it looks like Naito's knees are embedded in his fucking, like, lungs. I've never seen anything that stiff like that. But it hurts Naito's knees because it was so stiff. Naito manages to hit the Destinado from the second rope. That only gets two. He hits another one, and that's enough for the three count. Huge win for Naito. Uh, biggest of his career to date. Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, he's, I mean, he'd won the G1. He'd won the belt. But he just didn't have the support then. Yeah. It didn't mean anything. Here, the last five minutes of this match are one of the hottest crowds I've ever heard in my life. Like, the crowds are, like, literally an unchecked scream for, like, the last five near falls. It's wild. Which is super impressive right up until we get to the next match where the final ten minutes are all one unchecked scream. But that's neither here nor there. This is huge. And then Naito, who's never shown any respect for anyone ever, puts his fist on Tanahashi's heart and then bows to him. Which cements his baby face turn and is an incredible moment. Like, it gets a gigantic pop. Yeah. Like, he is now the top babyface in this company. Well-deserved. And we know where we're going. I would bet that by by G1, like, the bookers already knew. All right, next year, it's Okada Naito. Boom, we're yeah. going to sell it out. That's the dream. Yeah. What nobody could have predicted was Chris Jericho coming to New Japan. Except nobody but Chris Jericho, because when he saw how successful things yeah. were going, he said, hmm, let me get a little bit of that. that. Yeah. He mm, functionally but, uh, comes out of retirement to do that. Yeah. Yeah, WWE has totally written him off at that point. Like, he wants to wrestle more, and I think Vince had decided he was too old. Here's the irony. Chris Jericho is every bit the Hulk Hogan that Hulk Hogan is, but he's better. Because while Hulk Hogan was always legendarily able to, like, glommed on to the, like, the hot new thing, Chris Jericho always gets in on the ground floor, so he feels like he's part of it and he gets credit. Yeah. So he's never just seen as, like, an opportunist. He's always seen as being, like, part of the thing, which is good for him. But really, he he's like, oh, baby, Kenny Omega's the new hot star. Let me get me some of that. 
They roll the promo for the main event. Unbelievably, we still have one of the greatest matches of all time left on this show. If the main event had just been Naito Tanahashi, this would have been an utterly satisfying Wrestle Kingdom. It would have been an absolutely great show. Instead, we're about to go to another level here. Okay, so the premise of this match, very simply, Kenny Omega won the G1. New Japan wants to go international, and very simply, Kenny Omega's like, they're not going to push... They're not going to be able to do it unless somebody who speaks English is the person who's talking to the fans. Okada's like, well, that's bullshit because I'm the greatest who ever lived. These are both cocky, vaguely unlikable assholes. Yeah, I always find Okada interesting. I mean, he seems like kind of a dickhead to be a babyface. Absolutely he is. And it's funny because a lot of the times when he's a babyface, like he's a giant star. But I'm not sure that he's always beloved on the level that, like, Naito becomes, right? Like, a lot of those classic Okada matches, you don't really hear, like, gigantic cheers for Okada. Like, people get into the matches, but they're not, like, passionately in love with him personally. Does that make sense? Yes. It's kind of the way I've always felt about The Rock's character. Yeah. There's been a lot of guys like that through the years where, like, people loved Steve Austin. Did people love Bret Hart on the same level? Well, they did in Europe, but not necessarily in America. Yeah. Uh, People love or hate John Cena. Do people really love Roman Reigns in the same way? No, but you recognize the greatness, and he's still a big star. You better acknowledge him. By the end of this match, it's the first time I can ever really remember people screaming for Okada. This is a big deal. So we've got our main event for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, Kazuchika Okada versus Kenny Omega. Two men do battle to determine who's going to lead New Japan into their new era of international expansion. Worth mentioning before we start this, I would bet that there was zero people anywhere on the face of the planet who thought that Kenny Omega had a prayer of winning this match. There was just no thought that it was even plausible. He'd had a great year, but there's just no way. They've pushed him so hard. It's crazy. He was like, what was he in the sixth biggest match the year before this? Yeah, and he lost it. <laughs> yeah. This year, he, he beat Tanahashi. He beat he was going to beat Nakamura, but they never actually got really to do the match. Though he did pin him in a tag match. He wins the G1. Yep. He, like, dominates all through the entire year. Bullet Club's bigger than ever. And even so, you just can't build a star that big in one year. It's not possible. Omega is out first with an awesome Terminator entrance. They actually shot a mini-movie remake of Arnold arriving and stealing the dude's clothes with Omega. They would let Kenny do this stuff, and they, no one else ever did it. Fucking wild. And the pop when he started, when, like, it's like he's speaking English to the Japanese guys at first, of course, they don't understand, and then he starts speaking Japanese to them. Yeah, here's the thing. While he was the leader of Bullet Club, he never spoke Japanese because he knows the fans love him yes. for that. So he did, just specifically refused to do it for Heat. So when he does it, even for one sentence, the fans go, yeah, because they want to love him so bad. When he turns babyface, he's going to be a gigantic megastar. I can't wait for us to talk about that Wrestle Kingdom so we can talk about that whole thing, which is one of my favorite storylines in wrestling history. 
But at least for this moment, yeah, they'd lose it for him. And then he comes out in the Terminator outfit. Compare how awesome this was to how lame the Triple H Terminator entrance was. Now, I'll be honest. When he comes out and he's got, like, the mask and, like, the little kind of toy shotgun, I didn't think that that looked all that cool. But the Triple H one looks fucking hilariously bad. And even Triple H said it because they made him do it that because they had a tie-in with Terminator. It feels like there was a way to do that. If Triple H had ridden out on a motorcycle like the Terminator, I think it would have been cool. Fuck yeah. But, yeah, instead he came out with a plastic skeleton and a pole up his ass. There's a really great uh, – some videos online about this show where you can see uh, Kenny Omega and the Bucks backstage while, like, the video is playing. And you can see, like, the Bucks look scared for Kenny. Like, they're just, like – they're so fucking nervous and stuff like that. And Kenny just looks calm. And it's very cool to watch. Because literally, you can see the, like, the cue hit and they run out. And they do the same thing with Okada, except Okada's alone. And behind the screen at the Tokyo Dome, obviously there's like a whole section of the stadium where they couldn't sit people behind the set, right? Yeah. See, you're basically standing in an empty, dark arena by yourself in that moment before the most important Just moment of your entire life. Staring into the abyss and there's nothing staring back at you. And I just find it so fascinating to watch them in those moments yes. because I, imagine what's running through your head. Omega's head. If he kills it here and he knows what they're going to do, and if it he's works, made. he's made for life. But if he fails, if they blow yeah. it, he's done. Think of how much people would resent this. Again, he's not American, he's Canadian, but like this white foreigner getting pushed into the main event and then blowing it. Just like the whole year wasted. Like yeah. the company, a large part of like the company's future is riding on the shoulders of this match. Okada needs this too. This is his first Wrestle Kingdom main event without Tanahashi. That's a good point. It's his first one as a true blue baby face. He needs to prove that, like, the last time they tried to do it without Tanahashi was the failed Naito bullshit that, like, follows yeah. him to this day. This is his chance to wipe his hands clean of that. He's the guy. This is the first one he has to carry by himself. And Naito and Tanahashi just tore the house down. Okada looks amazing. He's literally got money dropping from the ceiling as part of his entrance. As the money drops, Okada... Uh, Omega catches one out of the air and crumples it up in front of yeah. his face. That was a cool moment. That. They spend about the first 10 minutes feeling each other out without doing much of note. I feel like that's pretty typical for Okada's matches, but here they really took their time doing it. and You could tell they were going long. It's really interesting to watch Omega because he actually came out recently and said in an interview that like when he was in new to the business, like Naramuchi Marafuji told him, like, you're the fastest person I've ever seen in the ring, but you've got to learn when to slow down. Yeah. And this is a great example of that because he wrestles large parts of this match at like half speed so that when he speeds up, it's like ridiculously yeah. fast. Man, when he starts hitting those V triggers. There's a spot at the end of this match that we're definitely going to get to where he hits like a dragon suplex and a V trigger within like 0.1 seconds. And it's terrifying. Again, they do this great. The way they shoot it, like he's not in the frame and he just flies in with the knee. And he catches him. He's doing it. So this great shit where he like catches himself in the ropes. So he's throwing like his whole body all the way into it. And Okada just leans out. So he's not really taking the knee, but it looks brutal. They fight on the floor. 
Omega tries to suplex Okada onto the guardrail. Okada reverses it, and he hits Omega with a hanging DDT off the guardrail. Okada pulls out a table. This feels like an unusual move for him. Okay, so this is a reference to on the way into this show, Kenny Omega gave him the one-winged angel through a table, which is one of the most brutal spots I've ever seen. Because he did it long ways. So Okada's neck hits it like a slant angle on that table as it breaks. It looks disgusting. So on the way in, Omega says he's going to do it again and break his neck this time. So that's why Okada brings the table out. Omega recovers. He cuts off Okada. Retakes control of the match. Wears Okada down for the next couple minutes. They start exchanging punches until Kenny hits a Frankensteiner that sends Okada out to the floor. Oh, man. Kenny. And then... The Bucks start playing the Terminator theme on the apron as Kenny hits a ridiculous somersault planche out to the floor. God. Has anyone ever done that move half as perfectly as he does it? It's terrifying, like the speed he hits that with. And he always gets over exactly right, hits him in the shoulder and lands on his feet. Like every time it's perfection. Okada struggles back into the ring. Kenny hits him with a missile drop kick to the back of his head that looks like it could have broken his neck. They do a replay and see oh. the show that like he gets him in the back of it. Like I've always been scared of moves like that because yeah. as the person taking it, you don't you know he's coming. It. Yeah. You don't know when to fall. So like Kenny hits him. Obviously Kenny pulls it. Like he's not Kicking him full force in the back of the head, but he connects with his head. Yeah, a move not that different from that ended Paige's career, except not really, because somehow she got better. She's back. (laughs) Okada turns the tide with a DDT and he kips up as the announcer calls 15 minutes gone. Okada goes for the tombstone, but he can't get Kenny over. He settles for a shoulder breaker. Goes for the flying elbow, but Omega gets his knees up. Omega follows up with a backbreaker, a baseball slide that knocks Okada over the guardrail. Omega goes up to the top rope, hits an insane moonsault from the top rope, down over the guardrail, and onto Okada. This is crazy. Here's the wildest part about this, right? He doesn't, like, climb up to the top and do the Shane McMahon thing where he checks 30 times to make sure he's got the trajectory Mm. right. He, without even seeming to think about it, runs, jumps up backwards onto the top rope, and then goes for the moonsault. And not only does he hit it perfectly, he hits it, like, immeasurably perfectly. There's no way he could have measured this or really known the proper distance. But his chin clears the guardrail by like six inches, and he hits right across Okada's back in the perfect way so he doesn't hit the fans, he doesn't hit the tables, he doesn't hit the guardrail. He gets all Okada, but not in a dangerous way. I don't know how you can do this. It doesn't make sense. Crazy. Just crazy. (sighs) Omega gets the table from earlier. He... Puts it on Okada and does a brutal double stomp, like breaking a hole in the table and I think gouging Okada in the stomach with some of the splinters of the wood because 
think Okada's stomach was bleeding. in. Yeah, the story is is that he's supposed to be working the abdomen so that Okada yeah. won't have like the, the core strength to really hit the Rainmaker at full strength, which we pays out later. We also saw the sequel to this in the Osprey match this year where he did the same thing but yeah. stomped a big asshole through the table. <laughs> yes, he sure did. Back in the ring, Omega hits a big power bomb, but he can only keep Okada down for a two count. The Bucks once again set the table up. Okada looks to be in real trouble here, and the crowd really starts getting behind him to fire him up. Omega hits a moonsault off the second rope. Omega goes up to the top rope. Okada hits him with a drop kick that knocks him down to the floor. This feels like the first offensive move from Okada in like 10 minutes. Kenny sets up for the one-winged angel off the apron through the table, but thankfully Okada gets out. I didn't want to see that. No. I mean, they hint on this. Like, the whole match is basically built around if Kenny can do that, he'll win. Yeah. Okada's going to be dead. Yeah, that would be – that's like the biggest kill shot I could possibly imagine. Kenny – Charges Okada, gets backdropped over the top, through the table. Just incredible air he got on this bump. I think this might be the most incredible table spot I've ever seen. Because Okada obviously is also not measuring how far he's going to toss Kenny, right? And once Kenny's in the air, he can't aim it. But he winds up hitting it. Like, if the table is a guy in the ring, he hits like a perfect swanton bomb on the table. So that, like, he hits it dead middle, breaks it to break his fall, but doesn't, like, hit all the random accoutrement or the railing. It's perfection. How? So, if Okada at this point just, like, dragged Omega back into the ring, hit him with the Rainmaker, and pinned him, this would be an awesome match. There's 20 minutes left. Guys. Like, he hasn't even done the Rainmaker pose yet. No, we haven't even gotten started here. The match they haven't even started tr- only does the pose. Yeah, they haven't even started trying to hit their finishers yet. Like, we're not even there. Okada could probably just win by count out here, but he goes out and gets Omega and drags him back into the ring. Noble, worth, but stupid. Worth mentioning that the fans are into it up until this point. It's not until, like... Kenny does the moonsault, hits, like, the double stomp, and then, like, this spot happens that the fans really, like, get invested. Like, the first 20 minutes are just kind of like, eh. But from this point on, they've got the fans. Okada with a beautiful missile drop kick that knocks Omega all the way across the ring. I love the idea that Okada's drop kicks are, like, way more painful than he's everyone so else's. He's big and his legs are so long. He's like giraffe yep exactly okada hits the flying elbow he signals for the rainmaker kenny desperately grabs the ropes to avoid it omega gets a shot to the abdomen to slow okada down as the announcer calls 30 minutes gone i've always loved that rainmaker pose because it's a symbol to the fans that like okay Okada thinks that he's weakened the guy enough that anything from this point on could be the end of the match. Yeah, like, now we're going. Because, like, it tells the fans, like, obviously you didn't think that the the match was going to end before this. But from now on, all of them are near falls. Like, it could happen anytime. All right. Omega sets Okada up on the top rope. Okada's looking out at the crowd. What was going through your mind? watching this live as he got up there 
as he applied a half Nelson, as he applied a full Nelson, and you realized with horror he was going to hit him with a super dragon suplex. So look, um, I assumed it was just a back suplex, right? When he clasps him in the half Nelson, I'm just like, all right, well, this is going to get reversed. There's no way this... When he gets him in the full, I realized that it was going to happen. And I remember, like, putting my hands over my mouth like, you can't do this to Okada. He's the biggest... The company's built on him. You can't do this. And then when they start to go back, (sighs) even watching it the second time, knowing it's going to happen, I, like, jump out of my seat like, no, no. It's bad. He landed right on his head. I don't understand how he didn't break his neck. Well, see, here's the thing. Is that, like, they show a replay of it, and you can see in it that he, like, leans his head as far onto his shoulder as possible. So not only does he not take it flush on the top of his head, he takes it on the side, but he's braced with his shoulder so that it's not just, like, bouncing, right? So I assume that they're trained to do that in the dojo or something like that, but it kind of explains how they take so many head drops without getting hurt, is they clearly know how to take them. Don't not try this at home. Not only is he not hurt, the match isn't even close to done. Oh, no, there's at least 10 minutes left. <laughs> it's fucking wild. He is doing some great concussion selling here, where he just goes, he just goes glassy-eyed. Omega with a neck breaker onto his knee. He goes for the V-trigger, but he misses. Okada hits a beautiful German suplex. He goes for the Rainmaker, but Omega ducks it. He hits the V-trigger. He goes for another one. Okada cuts him off with a dropkick. They're just throwing bombs at each other now. Yeah, when I mentioned that he was going at half speed before, for the last 10 minutes of this match, he just goes faster and faster. and It's like there's no fatigue here. Like He just keeps speeding up. And, like, Okada, for all his genius, can't keep up. Like, he's, like, he's throwing bombs, too, but, like, Omega's just hitting him, like, shot, 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 shot. Omega scores with a reverse Hurricane Runner, a V-trigger. He sets up for the one-winged angel. Okada slips out and hits him with a tombstone. Okada, like, flips out of this fucking thing. I had no idea he could even do that. He signals for the Rainmaker. He hits it. That's got to be it. That's it. What a great finishing sequence. And Omega somehow kicks out at two. Now, Okada didn't get all of it. Like, he didn't get, like, the full spin into the Rainmaker. He didn't get to, like, step into it. Like, it's it's like half a Rainmaker because his abdomen's hurt, so he couldn't get all of it. So, like, that's the story, is that Omega worked him enough that he just couldn't get 100% of this thing. And that's the only reason Omega's still alive. But still, after this whole match, Tombstone, then Rainmaker, and he kicked out. Also, the fans start buzzing at that point. There are, like, three dudes ever who have kicked out of the ring. Actually, I think there's only two. I think it's just... Tanahashi. I think Nakamura did, I think. Yeah. But, like, this is rarefied air for this guy who was basically a jumped up mid Carter who was having the match of his life. And now he's kicked out of the rainmaker. Like Omega's a guy now, like the the fans can't believe it. Uh, Okada can't, they start panning the crowd and like people like have their hands over their mouths. Like what's happening. Okada is stunned and takes a moment to gather himself. Can't do that, man. Get back on him. 
Omega hits some shots to Okada's abdomen, which Okada's so jacked up on adrenaline at this point, he's not even feeling them. Nope. Okada hits a drop kick that knocks Omega across the ring. Okada goes for another tombstone. Omega counters it. He hits a package tombstone pile driver. This was crazy. I've never seen this before. He invents that move yeah. for this. Like he goes for the tombstone and then he locks the legs and does like hits it and then holds it into a pin and gets like a two and nine tenths out of it that yeah. the crowd explodes for. Omega with a dragon suplex, a V trigger. Okada kicks out again. Another V trigger. He sets up for the one winged angel. He's going for the kill shot. He gets him up. If he can get him down, he's got him. But Okada grabs the wrist. He slips out. He hits the Rainmaker. He doesn't let go. He pulls him back up. As the announcer calls 40 minutes gone. Omega hits a series of kicks and knees. But Okada won't let go. He hits him with the Rainmaker again. And they're just both down. (laughs) Getting tired just calling this one. The first when he's in the one winged angel and he like reaches down and grabs the wrist, it's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen yes. in wrestling. Where he's up there and you just see him like come to and be like, no. And no, he reaches down and why. grabs the wrist and he wrenches it back. Okay. Okada makes it to his feet first. He sets up for one last rainmaker. This is gonna be the kill shot. Omega ducks it. Okada grabs him, goes for the tombstone. He slips out. Omega with a drop kick and the V trigger. Could he have him? It's so close. Is this it? He signals for the one winged angel. He gets him up. Okada somehow still has the wherewithal to slip out. He gets Omega up. He hits a jumping tombstone with stank on it. Yes, when you hit the jumping, twisting tombstone, that means you pissed him off. Yeah. He pulls Omega up, levels him with a kill shot Rainmaker, and gets the pin to end one of the greatest matches in pro wrestling history. Like, it stands the test of time. It's just as good as you remember. This was unbelievable. There are like, you want to pick nits in this, you go ahead and fucking do that. Like, I've, I've played that haterade game, and I'm not going to play it tonight. The entire first half of the match is just there to convince you that Omega could win. Then the, the next 10 minutes of the match are just to convince you that Okada's in bad enough shape that it's realistic. And then the last 10 minutes is... I've heard a lot of hot crowds in my time. I swear it's an unchecked scream from the crowd for 10 straight minutes. Like, the entire crowd is standing. The commentators are, like, literally just talking about how they have goosebumps. They're not even talking about the fucking match anymore. They're just talking about how hot the crowd is because it's incredible. Can't put this match over enough. I mean, they made Omega with this. Like, he's made for life after this match, even though he lost. 
But what people don't give enough credit to is that they also made Okada with it. Like, this is the moment where Okada becomes, like, best in the world Okada. Where you couldn't point to it and be like, oh, well, Tanahashi carried him. It was all about Tanahashi. No. This is Okada's match that he carried Omega to. Yeah. All Omega's amazing. This was against Okada's a guy match. who was not really a star coming in. He made a cultural icon in this match with his performance. That's yeah. How many people have ever can ever say that they've done that? Four or yeah. five. <laughs> it's incredible how much bigger of a star Kenny is in Japan than he is in America. Like for whatever reason, he just doesn't come across the same way in AEW as he does in New Japan. Part of it is a comfort thing, I think. I, like, Kenny never really learned how to wrestle for TV. Kenny never really had to learn how to wrestle in an American fashion and like, shorter matches. And I just don't think that he's ever going to be comfortable portraying a character via American tropes. But in Japan, he just gets it. Yeah. And they get him. Like, all, like, the weird quirkiness that feels a little off in America is endearing there. Like, it makes sense. Everything, it just, yeah, it always feels like his AEW presentation, like, lapses into this weird goofiness with the North Carolina stuff and, like, the women with the brooms. It just never, even when he was belt hunter Kenny and he had three and four belts he was coming out with, it felt like he was getting there. Right. It's not that he can't do it. I'll always point to that that match he had with Danielson in New York. Like, yeah. that's like the one time I can point to it and said, like, that was real Kenny. He really yeah. got it there. Like, the presentation was right. The match was perfect. Dead on. But here, he can just walk back in and just be this guy again. And, like, the fans love him so deeply. Not just because he, like, was some American guy. There's this feeling with a lot of guy gene who come over that they're just here temporarily that they're mercenaries you might like them but they're going to go back to the states eventually kenny was here he worked his way up from the indies not even through the dojo like he worked his way up from garbage like wrestling and ddt doing jack shit as a junior heavyweight he built himself up from nothing in japanese society not just i came over for the express purpose of becoming a main eventer in new japan like it means something to them so when he gets here they, they're ready for him. They want to love him. And when they finally get a chance to, he's probably the biggest Gaijin star ever and probably always will be. Um, Gato gets on the mat, mic and he hypes up Okada. Okada gets on the mic. I think he says he's the number one guy in New Japan. And then I think he says he's going to take New Japan global. Yes, he's going to make it rain on New Japan all around the world. <laughs> That presumably means something different in Japan than it does in America. No, actually, I think that means exactly what it means in America. Yeah, that's where he got the Rainmaker thing from. Is the money? Yeah. Yeah. Just (laughs) okay. Well then. Uh, So yeah, (laughs) that is a wrap on Wrestle Kingdom 11. I, I don't know. I I think I like the year before more because I really love the Tanahashi Okada. I loved the Tanahashi Okada matches and that story really gets me but man this was a great show and I'm the really fact ha- that they came back and put on a show on par with the previous two years after all the talent they had lost is amazing i'm glad to hear you say that because i fought a lot of vicious online forum wars in those days about tanahashi and okada being better 
Which, and I understand why, it especially for it doesn't matter which one is better. They it were doesn't. both amazing. Like we're splitting hairs here. They they can just both be great. One doesn't have to suck. You can yeah. just enjoy them both. And a large part of that was just me being gatekeepy, like, oh, you guys were only here because yeah. of white guys in the main event. Fuck you and fuck your. Ma-. You know what? That's not any more valid than the other side of it. Truth be told, this match is absolutely incredible. Both guys are absolutely incredible. My favorite match of all time was the one from the year before. But fuck, man, this. This is something special. These two main events back-to-back, I will say, and I won't listen to any dispute on this, the two best consecutive main events of the top show of the year for any company ever. And there's no there's no competing with it. Like, even this company won't ever compete with it again. This is the climax of, like, New Japan wrestling forever. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've never seen this, you got to at least, well, I, can't, I mean, I can't believe anybody listening to this podcast has never, like, at least seen this main event. Like, this match lit the internet on fire in a way I don't think I had ever seen before when it happened. You can go in with all the skepticism that you want. I I, I really wanted to have, like, a hot take on this podcast where I'm like, well, actually, uh, blah, 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 blah. I went into it being like, wouldn't it be interesting if I could say that? But you can't, man. I don't know that there's another match in wrestling history that I would so supremely be able to point to and say, like, you will love this match. There is no other opinion to have. I mean, I don't know. To be contrary, is it cheap? Were the table spots cheap? Was it cheap that they kicked out of so many finishers? I mean, I can understand. Look, there's a certain kind of wrestling fan who gets really mad if it's not like one finisher and then it's the pin, right? That's... That's the old school way of thinking, and I completely understand it. The table spot I don't think is cheap because it was built to in the story coming in. Like, most of the story coming in was about the table spot. So, like, I think that they earned that. But, like, I understand, like, if the New Japan main event style isn't for you, I get it. But it's it's hard not to get caught up in the excitement of it either way. Yeah, nothing bad to say about this match. Dave Meltzer gave it six stars, which it's fair that people clown on him for that. But this is an unbelievable match. If somebody said this was the best match they've ever seen, their favorite match, wouldn't have a problem with it. Wouldn't judge him for it. Yeah, I I would have a lot of trouble saying that this is the greatest match of all time because I need story in my match a lot more than this one had coming into it. But fuck, look, man. There are a lot of people like I know that there's like wrestling clubs and stuff that are around in like schools and stuff now. And I know that this is like a hot match to show them. And that and maybe it's a lot of an ass to ask somebody to watch a 46 minute yeah. match like their f- debut match into wrestling. But if you think you got somebody really hooked and they're ready to watch something outside of WWE for the first time, you could do a lot worse than this one. Yeah. <sighs> Man, what a show. What a show! God damn, if, I'm so if happy. We've seen this. Just, just start with uh, what's the place to start here? Um, I mean, you can realistically just start with Kushida versus Takahashi. Yeah, I'm not gonna hate anybody. That's the for that. big stuff. Like for me, I really wanted to see the Cody match and like the Ring of Honor. I really liked the Ring of Honor match too. But yeah, if you start with the Junior Heavyweight match and just watch the last four matches, you're getting four great, great matches in a row. <clears throat> Here's the thing. The obstacle to New Japan fandom is and has always been context. It's hard to come into it without knowing who the characters are or what's going on in the company or like, why is this guy fighting that guy? Because obviously it's all in Japanese, so you're not necessarily going to know or get like insight into the characters and stuff. One of the reasons that 
like I've spent so much of my life like reviewing it online and us doing these podcasts so we can give you that context so that it's easier for you now to go and watch it and enjoy it. Um, but I completely understand if you don't want to watch like a weird gauntlet, never open weight six man <laughs> tag team thing that sucks dick and you don't know who any of them are and don't care. Don't watch that. Not worth your time. Those last four matches, you do not need to know who they are, why they're there in order to enjoy those matches. They're just that good. Oh, all right. Any final thoughts on Wrestle Kingdom here? I'm so happy that one week a year you kind of like let me out of my cage. And I do this. you. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that you have to watch like a five hour show, which you Steve has so little fucking free time. He like splits this up into like seven different watches over the course of two <laughs> weeks. Man, he started this watching this show like back before the summer of punk was over. <laughs> This was a long one. And like, it's also just like, it's not an easy watch. Cause I'm not that familiar with the guys or like what their moves are. And I haven't seen, I mean, I, I had seen this show before, but it, it's not burned into my memory the way, like a lot of the big WWE shows are. Right. So like, I really have to watch and pay attention to be able to coherently explain the matches and the stories and who was doing what. And I know, like, there's probably people out there listening right now who are like, oh, Steve mispronounced this or whatever. I need you guys to understand that, like, Steve had never watched, like, a single fucking New Japan thing that didn't have to do with WCW <laughs> before we started this podcast. So you all can fuck I, off with that. All I had seen was the stuff in WCW in the 90s. Yeah. So, like, but the idea that through this podcast, much in the same way that I've become a big fan of a lot of WCW stuff, that you've become a fan of these guys in this promotion, it's just been really cool. Like, that's one of the reasons we started this without really knowing that that was it. Good wrestling is good wrestling and it transcends culture. It transcends language. Like this is why wrestling is so successful in so many places is because on a core level, it's just really easy to understand two guys fighting each other. There's not a ton of rules you need to explain. It's like, Oh yeah, you put to the, put their shoulders down for three and you win. Yeah. It's been a large part of my life's work up to this point, as weird as it sounds to say that, to kind of get New Japan to the people. To, like, help it be understandable, provide context, make it in some way easier to get in and enjoy it in the way that I always had. And one of the reasons that Q's Reviews died is because it happened already. Like, you guys all already know about New Japan. You've already watched it and you've loved it. It happened. My dream came true. And it's been so satisfying to see that. It really has. Yeah. And again, lots of people are skeptics. You know, they get tired of Dave Meltzer going on and on about how great these matches are. They've heard Bruce Pritchard and his Tokyo Dome jokes. Like, watch it and judge it for yourselves. All wrestling everywhere is good. Unless it sucks. But generally speaking... Like, if there's anything, if you can hear somebody talking passionately about something that's happening in wrestling, it probably kicks ass. Yeah. And if you're the passion of my voice, baby, because this is my shit right here. Good Japanese wrestling is great. You know, great American wrestling is great. Great Lucha Libre is great. You know, great European wrestling is great. It's just wrestling at the end of the day. You just got to find what specifically speaks to you. For most of you out there, you'll never become like the kind of people who are just sickos on a Saturday afternoon watching the the second week of the tour on the way into destruction where they're like not even fucking wear They're just wearing T-shirts the whole time because they're wrestling in front of 200 people in like some shitty prefecture in the south of Japan. 
that's fine. Yeah. That's <laughs> Don't a, be a sicko. New Japan is easy to follow because they really only do a big show like every two months. Really? Yeah. I mean, they have the, the big shows that they lead to, and then it's basically all house shows up until then that you don't need to watch. No. It's not necessary. And they recap them all. So I would heavily recommend just catch the pay-per-views, man. Get New Japan World. Watch like eight shows a year. Enjoy yourself. You won't miss anything. All right. Next week, we're going to have something completely different. Yeah. We're going... From the peak of Kyush's fandom to the peak of my childhood, and Kyush's really, with the Royal Rumble 2002. It seems incredible that we've really never covered this very specific point in time. Like, I feel like we covered, like, the draft, and we covered WrestleMania, obviously. Yeah. But, like, this moment is Triple H's moment. Yeah. And we've never really gotten to talk about it. Triple H coming back at Madison Square Garden, I remember watching it at the time and just being blown away by the reaction he got. Like, we do a lot of hyperbole. We talk a lot about, oh, the biggest pop I've ever heard. Like, this Triple H returning to Madison Square Garden might actually be the biggest pop anyone has ever gotten. Yeah. The biggest pop I've ever heard was when uh, Austin came out to help Mick Foley win the title on Raw that one time. And the longest pop I've ever heard was those Hogan pops that he got when he first came back. But the longest and hottest combined, that's this. And this is Triple H coming back after he'd been a heel. Coming back to the biggest babyface reaction ever. Steve, I can't wait for you to take a huge dump on me next week when I tell you that I didn't really know who Triple H was when he came back. (laughs) What? I mean, I sorted it. We'll get into it next week. I but you got to remember watching that. back in 2000 when he had the title. Yeah, in like late 2000. Oh. He oh. got hurt like right after I started like really getting into him. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk all about it next week, but it's gonna. I'm gonna get clowned. <laughs> all that and more next time on the Lockcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>